Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week, mass protests grip the West. Is the government still following the science? And the judgment of, of that time, of course, is not something... Uh, uh, for us, it's something for politicians to make. And what next for the Mog Kaponga? This is a complete farce, and I should think we'll be back to remote voting uh, before we're much older. Hello, and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh, and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hello, Arj. Hi, Paul. We've also got Rachel Wearmouth. Hi, Arch. Hiya. Hiya. Uh, and we're glad to welcome back the Conservative MP for Hitchin and Harpenden, Bim Afalami. Hello. How's the lockdown treating you? Well, I'm in Westminster now. So um, it sort of feels to some degree like sort of back to some version of normal. You haven't met Alok Sharma at close quarters recently, have you? Well, it's a, it depends what you define as close, I suppose. <laughs> I did see him yesterday in the um, in the Commons, but, you know, from a reasonably far, I mean, from several meters, but I, I did see him. And uh, in fact, I was going to speak to him and then, and then he, he was preparing for his uh, remarks. So rather than go and speak to him, I could see him burying his head in the folder. So I didn't go and speak to him, but I otherwise would have done. Uh, <laughs> so there we are. Uh, so I'm, uh, hopefully he'll be all right. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, well, anyway, let's crack on. Um, Racial injustice has shot to the top of the agenda this week amid a wave of anger over the killing of African-American George Floyd by Minneapolis police. The US has been gripped by mass protests and Donald Trump has poured fuel on the fire by threatening to deploy the military in response. There have been solidarity protests across the world, including in the UK. And over here, we also had official confirmation that black and minority ethnic people are substantially more likely to die from coronavirus. Health Secretary Matt Hancock launched the report with a clear message. Let's listen. The PHE investigation into the way in which the virus targets people unequally and disproportionately uh, has been uh, put on the website. And this is a particularly timely publication because right across the world, people are angry about racial injustice. And I get that. Black lives matter. And I want to say this to everyone who works in the NHS and in social care. I value the contribution that you make, everybody equally. And I want to say it right across society too. I want to thank you, and I want you to know that our whole country cares about your well-being. And I value too those who come to our country to work in the NHS and in social care. And I love that this country is one of the most welcoming and tolerant and diverse. That goes for the whole country, and it goes especially for the health and care system. Paul, ministers now say Black Lives Matter, but does it need to translate into action? Well, I think what we've seen is um, this week, 
starkly the first time a confirmation of what everyone assumed was the case, which was there is a disproportionate impact of COVID on uh, BAME communities. There's a lot of complexity still, um, it's particularly about areas of deprivation as well as uh, race. Um, and what's significant is that uh, those stats didn't include occupation, they didn't uh, strip out, for example, comorbidity or underlying health conditions, um, and they didn't strip out obesity, for example. So there's a lot of complexity still. But what I thought was really interesting was um, on one level, Matt Hancock, it was a bit facile the way he tried to shoehorn Black Lives Matter into his stats this week. And just like to... I've just done in my intro. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a podcast host. He's a um, but there was that. But the prime minister actually did was forced to get serious about it last night as well. Um, in terms of what the government is doing, I think it will all depend now on um, exactly what happens when the equalities minister actually um, decides she's, she's going to. Um, uh, conduct this review. So Kemi Badenoch has been put in charge of this. Um, there's a whole question as why is it Kemi Badenoch and not someone else? Uh, why is it not the Secretary of State, Liz Truss? Um, but she's been given this job and I think it, she obviously treated very seriously and she'll do it quite rigorous, rigorously. She knows it's a massive issue and uh, the really interesting thing will be whether or not the complexity tends to overwhelm the overall simple message um, of, of the disproportionate proportionality. Uh, I mean, only this week, for example, the Met really revealed figures that, for example, um, people from black and minority ethnic communities were more likely to be fined. And yet, as soon as those figures were put out, people said, well, that's not proof of the Met being particularly racist. It's proof, perhaps, of the, the on-street activity of working class men in innocent inner city London, for example. They're more likely to be out and about, more likely to be stopped. So there's all sorts of reasons. The difficulty will be stripping out just the, the component parts, I think. Yeah, Ben, what did you make of the um, uh, report on uh, BME coronavirus deaths and, and what would you like to see now going forward? Because it is difficult to draw firm conclusions at this stage. So I think that what Paul said was was very wise, actually, in terms of the difficulties of, of controlling for different things. Uh, you know, when I was studying philosophy at, at, at school, I remember being told um, in my first lesson that, you know, correlation is not the same thing as causation. And that is very, very true in this regard. I think going forward and, and thinking with a political head on, the important thing that as a government we you just need to do is make sure that uh, those people in the country, not just black people, but white people and Asian people and of all um, ethnicities who care about this issue, that they know we've taken, we're taking the issue seriously. So I think that that is just a test that we have to meet. And I'm sure that Kemi Badnot will meet that test. But secondly, something that is, um, I've been thinking about this for quite a long time, actually, before this whole thing came up, is the way in which when something happens in America, that just has an outside influence on the rest of the world. I mean, I find it extraordinary how we had you know, British protesters, hundreds, if not thousands of people in central London this week, sort of attacking police uh, about something that happened in a completely different country, in a completely different society. And frankly, our police have behaved very, very sensibly and cautiously 
but trying to maintain public order. And I haven't even got onto the whole issue of social distancing in the massive crowds, but I just find it very interesting how there's just a segment of the British and population, indeed much of the Western world, that when something happens in America, that is meant to therefore have an impact on us in a way that if it was the other way around, would just nobody would, would think of, of considering. So I think that that is quite an important sociological aspect to this that doesn't almost hasn't really been been brought out so much. Um, Bim, that's really interesting that you say that. Do you think it's just because of uh, America's kind of seen as the, well, the leader of the free world, they like to think of themselves. So inevitably we, we kind of, we are very influenced by what happens there. Uh, that's partly true. And look, America has a huge cultural influence on the country, whether it be through music and books and, and TV and films and all the rest of it. But also, and this is where I think it is, I wouldn't say political in a party political way, but I do think ideologically. The British left has in particular taken up a lot of language and experience from the American sort of left. So when we talk about a green, um, you know, Green New Deal, that's language that the British left has directly copied from the Demo you know, certain Democrats in the US. When we talk, even the phrase New Deal, in fact, I remember Gordon Brown in the New Labour years talking about New Deal. You know, this is a Franklin Roosevelt phrase. So there is something about, I think, part of the British sort of political uh, class and, and, and media that does look to America and, and think of America as really Britain writ large or, or Britain's cousin. Now, I, America, in my view, is actually a very much more different society than we realise. But at the same time, as a black person, I can say this, um, I think that there are certain similarities in terms of how black people in the US and the UK view their position within the society. So I'm not saying that the similarities are completely bogus. I just think it's very interesting how, you know, America sneezed with this, with this issue and everybody else has caught a cold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can, can just, just one more on this. Do you, do you have some sympathy with the protesters? Because we do have racial injustice in this country, as, as shown by the government's own racial disparity audit. And we have seen elements of, you know, not, not close to the same scale as in the US, but we have seen elements of kind of police mistreatment or alleged mistreatment of minorities. Yes, I mean, obviously there is um, racial disparity in this country. And I think the vast majority of people know that. I think the difficult thing is always, what do you do about it? Uh, and how do you do that? And how do you do it whilst recognizing that there are other people who though not necessarily disadvantaged by color of their skin are disadvantaged in all sorts of, of other ways. So for example, I think of, there are people who are white and whose generations of British, white British, but yet for reasons of poverty or class feel at a huge disadvantage to lots of other people. And there are other people who are not white, but who through reasons of a lack thereof, of say poverty, or, or, or you know, having been educated in a certain way or gone to a certain school or whatever, don't necessarily have the same disadvantage. They have certain advantages and certain disadvantages. And I think it's a very complex picture. But what's difficult, I think, is to really put that in a party political framework now, I don't think, to be honest, it has become that too much in this country, and I'm thankful for it. Uh, and, you know, you haven't seen, you know, the Labour Party attack the Conservative Party over this or anything. So it's important to say that. But what I am starting to notice is 
we've just got to make sure that people on the left don't start to say, oh, people on the right don't care about this issue just as much as they do. And we've just got to make sure we, we maintain almost a bipartisan sense that this is important. The right or left may have different ways of feeling of tackling that. But I think everybody in this country, contrary to, I think, certain other parts of the world, does think this is a really big issue. Yeah, uh, Rachel, Boris, Johnson, Boris Johnson's language on, on the killing of George Floyd has been pretty strong, but there are some calls for him to go further. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people would kind of say because we have this special relationship with America that we're in a unique position to to be more sort of direct with with Trump. But I think one of the things I, I sort of hear what everyone's saying about um, it's really hard to draw conclusions from from the latest report and what have you. But I think what one of the things Boris Johnson maybe really needs to look out for is like a really appearing to do nothing. Because, um, I mean, when you look, at the, I think there's been a lot of anger that the Public Health England report just had no recommendations whatsoever. And there was kind of no, not even any suggestion on what could be done after it. And when you look at sort of, I think it's Somerset Foundation Trust, they have treated all of their BAM staff now as vulnerable and, and in the at-risk group. And they've, they've taken all of their BAM staff off the front line, given them priority for PPE. And that might be very easy to do in somewhere that's not, not not very diverse like like Somerset's not very diverse but it, it, it's at least an action it's something that's happening and I think um it's also kind of when you look at things like the the Windrush compensation scheme has only paid out for 60 people um like 360,000 from from a fund that officials expect to pay out between 200 million and 500 million within the you know that they've only paid out to 60 people within the first year so I think I think Boris Johnson sort of needs to maybe get his own house in order a little bit and think about how 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 it might look to people looking in on the government at the moment. So so I think you make um, an interesting point. And I, when I started, I said that it's very, very important that the government shows everybody that we take it seriously. So I agree. But what I don't think we should do is just do what, to be honest, so, so often happens in government and politics which is we have to be seen to do something, so we'll just do something and not really think about the fundamentals of, of your actions. I actually welcome the fact there weren't any recommendations because what we wanted was the information. And now that we can now debate what those recommendations should be. You know, my father's a consultant anaesthetist, uh, black consultant anaesthetist in West Hertfordshire, uh, who is, you know, treating patients, etc. I don't think that he would now want to be regarded as, no, you can't treat patients because of, because of this, before we've really had an in-depth, really careful analysis of exactly what the risks are. And I just think we've just got to be careful uh, before we have a chance to think very carefully. But, but I, I do take your broader point that the government does have to be seen to take it seriously and indeed you know, take it seriously as well. Were you a bit disappointed with the PM's sort of language this week? I mean, he said he was, I think it was appalled and sickened, but then kind of was very reluctant to make any direct criticism of, of Donald Trump. Do you think that was the right course of action? Yeah, yes, because it's so easy uh, to criticise another leader in another country, and especially Donald Trump, who is just desperately unpopular in this country, indeed much of the world. Indeed, actually, much the US. But you know, it's very easy. It's very easy to do that. But as a prime minister, you just always have to be mindful that our prime minister needs to deal with every other world leader, 
and they need to be very careful in their language when you're dealing with another country. How would we think about, how would we feel if other countries say in relation to the complex relationship with Northern Ireland, say, started to criticize us? We'd say, no, 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 this is a British issue and they're very, it's very complex. So we've just got to, you know, I think the prime minister needs to be very careful in his language um, whilst at the same time expressing what I think he did express and that he was appalled and sickened. Yeah, Bim, do you think though he should pick up the phone to Trump and maybe say something in private? I'm pretty sure that they speak quite a lot anyway, uh, and I've absolutely no idea. But you know, dealing with Trump probably isn't the easiest thing in the world. So uh, I'm sure that they have a, a a thought through strategy on how to do that. The government has always said its decisions on coronavirus have been led by the science. But that claim has been tested in recent days as ministers have faced criticism from members of its own SAGE advisory group for easing the lockdown too quickly. The government's top scientists have also refused to endorse a plan to quarantine travellers, which has also drawn widespread criticism from some Tory MPs. And intriguingly, ministers have started to take control of the statistical briefing at Downing Street's daily press conference, um, which itself has been called misleading by the UK stats watchdog. Chief Scientific Advisor Sir Patrick Vallance was asked about the quarantine plan last night uh, and he refused to give it a full endorsement. Let's have a listen. It's that the uh, measures at the border are most effective when the incidence is very low in this country and when applied to countries which have higher incidence. And the judgment of, of that time, of course, is not something uh, uh, for us. It's something for politicians to make and they make the policy and they make the timing decisions. But that's the advice that we gave him. Uh, Paul, has the government ditched the science? Well, it, it depends how you define it, I think. The phrase that was used early on was that we're being led by the science. They're, then they adjusted it to we're being guided by the science. Uh, and I think it's important from what Valence was saying and from what um, Jonathan Van Tam has been saying, it's so obvious that SAGE as a body has not recommended the quarantine plan, for example. It's, it's so obvious. Priti Patel was asked several times yesterday, have they recommended it? And she came up with this um, obfuscation yesterday, which was, well, there's lots of people within SAGE in different government departments who have guided uh, our advice, who have informed the decision. Uh, yeah, and number 10 said the same. They've informed the decision. They haven't recommended it. It's so obvious from the logic of what those scientists have said that it only makes logical sense if, if this applies to countries that have got a much higher infection rate than ours. And ours is obviously higher than most. There was a great stat from Hugh Merriman yesterday in the chamber where he said 50, 13 out of the 15 most popular destinations between the UK and the rest of the world have higher rates uh, of, uh, we have higher rates of transmission than they do. Um, so it look, it's obvious that the scientists are unhappy, but they're, you know, they're government scientists, so they have to work within the system. And it's also worth saying that just because you're guided by the science doesn't mean you have to be directed by the science and that politicians have a do have a distinct role they have to look at that scientific advice and then make a decision and it's certainly true that you could some within government are arguing and i think when the post-mortem happens on this whole covid crisis this may well come out more and dominic cummings hinted at it i think there's there's a view abroad that actually it was the scientists early on who were too reluctant to go into lockdown early enough and that the PM perhaps listened to them too much. Um, so you had Witty and Valence basically not clamouring for an early lockdown. 
Um, so that's a good example of why, you know, ultimately it's up to the politicians to make up their mind. Having said that, you know, once you once you use this phrase, we're guided by the science, you've got to then make clear that ultimately is your call as a politician. And I'm not sure that's been made too clear so far for a variety of reasons. Um, I think uh, it's obvious in the quarantine case, it's quite clear cut. But in schools, for example, again, it's, it seems not totally clear cut. Is the government going ahead against the advice or is the advice just flexible enough to a bit like the Bible? You can read whatever into it you want. <laughs> ben, what do you make of that? What, the Bible? No. <laughs> <laughs> we've got, we've moved on from Trump. That. We've moved <laughs> on from <laughs> Trump. We talk about Ecclesiastes. There's, Ecclesiastes there's nothing new under the sun. Okay. Um, I think that, uh, again, you know, Paul makes a lot of good points. The, the essential difficulty with the science as defined is there is no settled science, right? What you have is a new disease of which new learning is emerging every day. And the interpretation of that learning differs, not just from scientist to scientist, depending on their own specialization. Because actually, if you take a, even a cursory look at the members of SAGE, and that's all been published, people have got hugely different sort of disciplines and skill sets within that. Some people are experts in child health. Some people are experts in, in um, epidemiology. Some people learn everything on SARS, some people have a flu experts, you know, there's a whole panoply of, of, of different experience there. And there are a lot of discussions that will differ and there'll be lots of arguments in that committee. There isn't sort of, so almost the phrase guided by the science, that science isn't sort of one view, that, that is a huge thing. So it's a very difficult job. I think Paul's right that, um, you know, the government has to be the one taking the decisions. It is easier on the way into a lockdown when you're shutting things down to gather those sort of that, that panoply of scientific voices and, and get one recommendation because it's simpler. But as you're coming out, the speed of which you come out and exactly how what, what ends up being opened up first or second, because it all depends on human behavior. It depends on how people respond to what government said. It depends what the weather's like. It depends what the economy's doing. It depends what unemployment is. All of these things are what politicians are gonna have to weigh up. And so actually, in some degree, it's an inevitability that from now on, it becomes harder and harder to get that very clear recommendation you should do the quarantine or very clear recommendation for face masks or very clear recommendation you shouldn't open pubs till 2050 or whatever. So, so I think that it is really important that when we think of the science, the media, and of course, I don't mean you guys, because you guys are obviously wonderful. But yeah, obviously. What, what, what I mean is the media, the media more broadly needs to just be a bit more cognizant of the fact that there isn't one scientific view. Yeah, okay, but there doesn't seem to be a single scientific view or very few in favour of the quarantine plan. It looks like government by focus group. Why do you think they're ploughing ahead with this? Ploughing ahead with it because I can say to you, in the first couple of weeks of lockdown, it was one of the most oft requested things by my constituents. Uh, people, now it's partly because my constituency is near Luton Airport, which you know is a is obviously a local issue in that sense. But more broadly, a lot of people were saying, "Hold on, so I'm not allowed to go and see a member of my family, my friend, or whatever, and yet someone could fly in here from you know 
Latvia or Cameroon or the United States or wherever with no checks whatsoever uh, and with no, no, with no safeguards. Now that doesn't seem to make sense. So we've got to the place now where we've put in this quarantine. I think it's being reviewed every three weeks. I may be wrong about that. I think it's every three weeks. Yeah. So really we'll, we'll be able to tell pretty quickly as to the impact of this or the lack thereof. There are also quite a long list of exemptions. Actually, I, I took a look at these before coming on and it's longer than I appreciated. So we've, in effect, there are a lot of people who we know have to be able to come in and out of the country and they are contained within the exemptions. What this is really designed to do is A, um, make sure that we don't import cases because just because, and, and so, and I think, I think it was you, Arj, but forgive me, maybe it was um, Paul or Rachel, just because a country at a particular point may have a lower um, number of cases than, than the United Kingdom, that does not mean you're not importing cases. So, you know, it is, it, it is important that we recognize that we are making our citizens do quite tough things still. You know, the lockdown, the lockdown hasn't completely gone. And it's only fair that in that context, we at least try as much as we can, bearing in mind the exemptions, bearing in mind we're reviewing it every three weeks, to not import new cases. That only seems fair, seeing as how much we're putting our own people through. Um, Rachel, underlying all this is the uh, test and trace program, which is sort of designed to replace the more draconian measures as we go on, like the lockdown and possibly this quarantine plan. How's that going? Um, well, sort of the short answer is nobody really seems to know. Um, it's kind of, there's a lot of it that's still like, I wouldn't say shrouded in mystery, just very unclear. For, for example, I think the, the Prime Minister at PMQs this week gave a commitment that um, all, all cases would be tested and have, have the results back within 24 hours. We didn't include postal votes in that. And when you look yes. at our overall uh, postal tests, not votes, sorry, <laughs> um, uh, postal, postal tests in that. And we don't actually know what proportion of the overall testing number is actually postal tests. So we don't know what number is actually committed to. Um, and there was some really interesting evidence at the uh, health and health committee this week. Uh, Jeremy Hunt's committee um, heard from heard from um, uh, Professor Christoph Fraser from the University of Oxford, and he he talked about this golden forty eight hour period um, after which um, close cont close contact of someone with coronavirus start to infect others and. The, the disease starts to spread more. And the committee also heard from Dido Hardin, who is um, the, the person in charge of the government's test and trace uh, system. And she just had so few answers, so little data. I mean, she kind of was got a bit of a ticking off from, from Jeremy Hunt, just saying you have to come back with, you know, answers to about five questions. Particularly, was particularly interested in just how quickly the government is going to be getting back to people within who are, you know, tested positive and been able to trace their contacts and how quickly that's being done because I mean all of this speaks to just how effective the, the system is going to be and it just seems like there's there's either a lot of holes in it or it's being launched without any kind of real hold on what data there is. Yeah Paul that's kind of the crucial thing here isn't it that, that test and trace isn't quite um, there and yeah, I yeah think we're that's, easing the lockdown. I 
the thing is, though, obviously, this is a, a system being built from scratch. So you do have to cut, cut them some slack. Um, that's precisely why, though, the PM perhaps shouldn't have launched it as, as perhaps as quickly as it was before it was totally ready. All the local health authority experts say they're not going to be up and running properly locally until the end of June. Uh, you could feasibly say, well, you should have waited until everything was in place and then the capacity was all in place and you could have launched it all at the same time. So, you know, that, that 45,000 a day capacity is obviously crucial, as Keir Starmer pointed out this week. That was a really good stat to, to mention. We probably will have more than that capacity in this system by the end of the month and it may well work very effectively. If we get an app, it'd be even better. Um, but I think that's why a lot of people thinking maybe it's been slightly rushed. You could have waited like Wales, for example, to the end of the month for schools. Wales has got a pretty impressive program for all years going back at the end of the month, not just a few years, um, because it thinks it'll be safer. All right. Well, let's crack. I was just going to say, this is why it doesn't make any sense to me that they're kind of almost putting the cart before the horse, because the idea of easing the lockdown would be to get people to have confidence in the system. So why not make it look as good as possible to the public before before launching it so um we must move on uh mps were controversially ordered by jacob reese mogg to return to the commons this week uh, the commons leader scrapped the hybrid parliament that ran through the lockdown instead forcing mps to turn up in westminster to physically vote in long socially distanced queues which have been dubbed the mog conga the decision sparked a tory rebellion and is also facing criticism after business secretary alex sharma went into self-isolation after looking a bit ill while speaking in the Commons on Wednesday. Even Rhys Mogg's old ERG ally Steve Baker described the plan as a farce, even though he voted for it in the end. Let's have a listen. So this is remote voting in the House of Commons. Um, there is a queue snaking all around the gardens here, and there is a queue snaking all the way around behind me. What's even worse than the practical reality is that it's all being played out in front of the political lobby journalists. So. This is a complete farce, and I should think we'll be back to remote voting uh, before we're much older. Paul, why is the government persisting with this? Well, it is slightly baffling, isn't it? I mean, you can see why someone like Steve Baker, who got ridiculed online because he actually showed how farcical it was and then voted for it. Um, uh, you can see why he did that, because he felt that actually, um, and I don't know how Bim voted in the end, but a lot of MPs didn't like it, but they said, all right, we'll go along with it because we desperately hope the government is going to see sense very quickly. They have seen sense on proxy voting, for example, um, and that will probably be finessed a bit more later. But it does seem just almost perverse not to allow re remote voting for a few individuals or even, you know, a substantial minority of individuals who desperately do want to be in the chamber, but they can't uh, and desperately want to vote. And proxy voting is one thing. Yeah, but um, remote voting would make it a bit better. And I, I don't know. It, it's slightly baffling. Uh, you have to come back to the to the I think the real reason is about getting legislation through um, and uh, public bill committees, which we won't have time for now. But there isn't the, the tech set up so far for public bill committees to, to ram through legislation as quickly as the government wants. Um, Bim, yeah, the, the government seems to be constantly annoying its own MPs at the moment. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Paul's point is right about the legislation. I think that that is a, a, a very, very fundamental point here. Uh, but, but also, and look, I'm, you've got to bear in mind the nature of the Conservative Party. You know, the clues in the name. Uh, you've got people, <laughs> myself included, 
who think it's important that you attend the Commons physically. That isn't to say that we shouldn't have arrangements for people who can't, and there's, I think the government was sensible to with the proxy voting, et cetera, as you said. But what I think there is a worry on the Conservative benches that had the remote voting sort of become just embedded and people regarded that as then their right, then for a long period of time, people will say, well, you know, I can just vote from home. I won't turn up to Westminster. I can't be bothered this week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote from home. And actually, that doesn't make Parliament work properly. I mean, when I was, uh, during lockdown, Parliament wasn't operating, you, know, you can't do your job properly. There's only a small fraction of your job is speaking in the chamber. A large part, oh, asking questions. Debates didn't work properly remotely. Uh, a large part of your job is speaking to people and understanding what's going on. It's, it's interacting. It's, that is a large, large part of what being an MP is about. And you just can't do it properly from home. So I did think we have to get back as soon as possible. My criticism, and this is actually a criticism of the, the house authorities, because um, I spent a bit of time digging into this, is there were lots of different ways in which we could have physically voted. You know, the way they did it, I do not think at all was the most sensible way. And I, of, of pressing uh, the whips and uh, speaker's office, and I've said, look, you know, there are other different ways we could do this. We could use the lobbies as well as the chamber. You know, there are lots of different ways of doing it. We didn't have to have that line in the way that it was done. And, uh, and I, so I, I, it can by definitely can be improved, but I, I just think that it's important that we're there and we vote physically. And just as a wider point, Bim, there does seem a lot of disquiet on the Tory benches from this to the quarantine plan to China to food imports after Brexit. So many issues at the moment, there are little rebellions forming and you wouldn't expect that after such a thumping election victory, would you? No. No, I mean, look, so I think your your basic analysis is, is not wrong, but I think there are some quite understandable reasons for it. The biggest one is the fact that we've been in lockdown, people have been at home. It's very, very isolating when you've got a massive national crisis and you're having to deal with that on your own in the laptop with all, and by the way, I'm not... I've, People listening to this, you guys, everybody's had to deal with things that are difficult. I'm not, you know, MPs are, uh, it's no more or less, you know, I'm not saying MPs are special in this regard. But when you have that difficulty and you're, you're doing it on your own, people feel alone. They don't feel as much part of what's going on because they haven't been able to interact with their colleagues. They don't, you know, decisions get made and they think, why did that happen? Nobody explained why to me, etc. So I, I think that the fact that we're at home did make it harder for people to, to do that. And also, um, you know, this is, this is a really tough time. A huge amount is going on, as we all know. In tough times, it's when inevitably people are gonna have more disagreements. When, when things are easier, you're not gonna have disagreements. And tough times combined with a larger majority of 80, means that a lot of people think, well, it doesn't matter if I rebel. If you had a majority of five, you wouldn't be having the same dynamic. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these things, I think, are more, they're sort of mechanistic and fundamental. Uh, what I keep telling everybody is, look, we've got, you know, it's four, four years to go, you know, four and a half years of this parliament to run. There's a lot that needs to get done. There's a lot that will happen. And people shouldn't so much be looking at polls and people should just be thinking about getting the job done and the party staying together in the right place because if the party isn't together 
uh, MPs who think, oh no, because I spoke out against X thing or Y thing, all my constituents who never vote Conservative will vote for me. I'm afraid it doesn't work that way. The only way the party's successful and the government's successful is if we get our act together, get on the same page, yes, interact and have arguments in private, but then when we come to a decision, go with it, because that's really the only way that you're going to be successful in the future. Right, it's time for the quiz. And this week's is all about voting in the House of Commons. So Bim's got a bit of an advantage here, I think. Well, we all should, should really. Okay, question number, just pipe up if you know the answer. Question number one, why or, or how did the phrase originate when the speaker says, clear the lobbies when calling a division or vote? Clear the lobbies? Yeah. I don't know. Is that, to, is that because it's lobbies plural, is that to make sure that all members of the public are out of the way and only MPs can can vote because they physically move through I and no lobby. Yeah, I'll give you a point on that. But it was actually because in 1771, uh, a so-called stranger or non-MP was included in the nose vote. And it sub subsequently became clear that that man, Thomas Hunt, had voted several times in the past. <laughs> so that's why the speaker. That's, that's quite funny. That's, that's, that's why um, you're not allowed to vote with your coat on. Because they, people used to send, you know, their servant. They were sort of off drinking or whatever. And then uh. they'd send their servant with a coat, you know, round his shoulders, hunched to vote. So you're not allowed to vote with your coat on. Fantastic. <laughs> <Didn't know that. laughs> um, when a vote is called, the division bells are sounded. Uh, there are around 200 outside the Palace of Westminster, including in public establishments. Um, if anyone can name three, they can get a point. Uh, the Blue Boar. Yes. They've definitely got them. Um, Westminster Arms and yes. uh, Shepherds. Uh, I was going to say Red Lion as well. Yeah, that's one. Shepherds? What's that? What's Shepherds? <laughs> it's the, it's the, one of the oldest restaurants in Parliament. Um, you know, West, oh, right. yeah. It's it not might, on my lip. Maybe it's now closed. It, it was closed and then it reopened as a ah, sort right, of chic okay. retro valley. Uh, it's all right, because with social distancing rules, they'll be able to have about three tables in there now. So it's right. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, there's loads if anyone wants to name three more. Uh, well, what's the um, what's that Indian restaurant that everyone goes to, the really posh one? The Cinnamon Club, that's yeah, got one. That's um, one, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of the, the pub opposite Westminster that's right next to PCH, but I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, that's got one. St. Stephen's. St. Stephen's. St. Stephen's Seven. Yeah. Ah, pubs. Yeah. Oh, God, I miss pubs. <laughs> July. July. They'll come back. They'll come back and they'll be busy. Don't worry, guys. We'll have, get have you been given any hints, Bim, on when we might be able to have a pint? Well, no, I think, I think we said it publicly, I think, which is at some point, hopefully, if everything goes in the right direction in um, hospitality, you guys are saying July at some point. Great. Um, final question. Um, for which MP was the first proxy vote cast? Oh, good question. Oh, it would have been a pregnant woman. Was it Thingy? What's she called? Oh, uh, Tulip Sadiq. Tulip. Yes, Bim, correct. Well done. Tulip Sadiq. There we are. Yes, congratulations. I think Paul's just scraped that because he was quick on the uh, division bells. 2 1, I think, Paul. Well done. Just congratulations. Tulip Sadiq. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> she's, she's very nice as well. Good. Yeah. Glad to hear it. I saw that Stella Creasy took her baby in the chamber today. 
maybe the baby could uh, lead the way in terms of behavior and conduct. <laughs> well, well it's, not... Stella's it's out of Stella's behavior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, ouch. Burn. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so that you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. Uh, we'll just leave you with Jacob Rees-Mogg's childhood reminiscences as he defended his plan to enforce physical voting. Mr. De Madam Deputy Speaker, I, the Honourable Gentleman asked if I've ever been to Alton Towers, and yes, indeed I have. I took my sister, Annunziata, there many years ago. Uh, and and um, being... being uh, uh, anyway, that's enough of, enough of my reminiscences, because I think... Uh, the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details.